Thank you very much, Laurie, and also for uh, inviting me. And I had a, uh, a terrific time meeting with everybody here. And this is my first visit to uh, Columbia. And um, I'm uh, uh, so what I'm going to tell you a little bit about today is this uh, story. It's always uh, an interesting topic every time I talk about uh, this hype hallucination. And um, and I think. Um, I hope that uh, you'll find it an interesting uh, story. Um, what uh, I thought I would begin by doing is just kind of introducing you to um, our, our group at Indiana University. So I was uh, brought to IU uh, about uh, uh, four and a half or so years ago, uh, and, um, and I was uh, asked to kind of recruit and, and build uh, or rebuild uh, the Diabetes Center. And, and Indiana University has had a the Diabetes uh, Research and Training Center of, of the old NIH uh, DRTCs, which are the P60s, uh, for about 25 odd years. And then about uh, a decade ago or so, they um, unfortunately lost that P60. And it's been sort of a struggle to regain it. And, and a lot of that is because you really need to have people uh, that really form the critical mass of any center. And so, uh, so what I began by doing is bringing my own lab uh, to IU. Uh, and then this is actually a somewhat dated figure of the people in my lab, although most of the people are still there, but we've got some new members. And unfortunately, as you, as you guys all know, these labs change constantly. So you can never keep these pictures up to date. Yeah, is that in Indiana or in Virginia? Because it's awfully sunny. It's in Indiana. <laughs> this is actually in Indiana, just outside of our uh, medical science building. <laughs> so we do get sunshine in Indiana, as long as it's in the summer. Uh, uh, the, the other people in my group, uh, Debbie Thurmond, a, a senior investigator who studies uh, uh, insulin secretion and mechanisms of insulin granule exocytosis. Uh, Carmela Evans-Molina, who was actually a former trainee of mine, uh, received her PhD in my lab many years ago, uh, but now has her own independent group. Um, as well, uh, we recruited uh, Patrick Feger, uh, who used to work with uh, Chris Newgard's group uh, at Duke, and, uh, and I brought him in about uh, almost three years ago now. Uh, a couple of years ago, I brought in this guy, Ryan Anderson, who worked with uh, Didier Chanier at, uh, uh, at the time uh, when he was at UCSF. Uh, and he uh, is standing here pictured right in front of a zebrafish tank. So part of what we had to do is we had to build that zebrafish infrastructure and recruiting him in. But I think we uh, have a nice uh, sort of zebrafish infrastructure and a lot of interest right now in studying development in zebrafish. Uh, and then a couple other groups that I brought in. Uh, Linda DeMeglio runs our Traumat U01s. Um, so it's uh, our, uh, our Traumat Center doing studies in humans, uh, primarily uh, studies uh, related to uh, uh, sort of drugs uh, that disrupt the sort of immune cascade in type 1 diabetes. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that today. And this is Linda right here, and then this is uh, her team of nurses, and then um, and she's got a couple of collaborators, including Carmela, and then Janice Blum, who's a, a senior uh, immunologist at uh, at IU, and then more recently we recruited this guy, Mark Rigby, who also studies. He's a pediatric, uh, not an endocrinologist, interestingly, he's a pediatric. Uh, uh, pulmonary critical care person, but his interest has been primarily in glycemic control in the pediatric intensive care unit. So we've got, uh, we go from zebrafish all the way to humans, uh, I'd like to think, and then, and then we've got a few people in between, like myself. Um, okay, so uh, just a, a quick overview about what I'm going to talk about today. So 
as Lori mentioned, one of the things that we've been doing that's different than in years past is uh, I've been studying, I've moved from transcription really over to mRNA translation. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about mRNA translation today. And then uh, we've moved from largely type 2 research to type 1, although we still do some type 2 work. Um, so, but what I'm going to tell you about today is really type 1 diabetes and then sort of this concept that we've been studying about uh, the role of the beta cell in the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes. Uh, and I think it's a, a concept that's sort of catching on, um, and I'm sure that there's still probably a lot of controversy surrounding that, depending on if you're an islet biologist or an immunologist. And then I'm going to talk about uh, sort of uh, the role of hypocene in mouse models of type 1 diabetes. And then I'll take one step back, and then uh, how is hypocene derived? They're derived from polyamines. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the work that we're now entering with respect to polyamines in models of type 1 diabetes. So um, this is uh, data about the prevalence of uh, both prediabetes and diabetes in the United States. It was published about uh, uh, three or four years ago. Uh, and what was striking about the data uh, were that um, uh, the prevalence, the cumulative prevalence of diabetes and prediabetes in the U.S. is close to 40%. So we know that. Uh, and that's a, really quite a striking number. And you can see what, sort of the age distribution and how that prevalence increases uh, as you uh, get older. So you're almost uh, at the age of 75 and, and older, the prevalence is near 80%. Um, but in the 12 to 19 age group, this is really what struck me. And I can understand this to some extent. But in the 12 to 19 age group, that prevalence is about 18%. So really pretty high. And though I was trained as a, uh, an adult endocrinologist, actually, um, I don't know if Lori mentioned this, I'm actually primarily in the Department of Pediatrics. And, um, and I actually do have a half-day clinic a month, so not a lot of uh, clinical time, uh, where I do see children. Uh, and the children have both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But by, by far and away, uh, though we talk about uh, the prevalence of obesity, especially in kids, uh, strikingly, still, uh, the majority of diabetes that we see in kids, 80% plus, uh, of course it depends on, on ethnicity, but by and large, the majority of diabetes we see in kids is still type 1 diabetes. So, uh, so a lot of this glucose intolerance that we're seeing here uh, is type 1, but now, of course, a lot of that glucose intolerance we're seeing um, is starting to sort of shift over into type 2 as well. Um, and this is sort of the prevalence as we saw uh, if you split by age group. So if you're less than 10 years old, you could see that the prevalence of type 1 is mostly, uh, excuse me, that the type 1 is about uh, the 90% or so of uh, the type of diabetes that we see. Then as we move to kids in the 10 to 19 age group, you can see based on ethnicity down here. And so this is all non-Hispanic uh, whites, non-Hispanic blacks. Uh, AI is American Indian or Native American. And you can see how the, the prevalence of type 2 increases as you move into these other uh, ethnic categories. And you see that primarily at this cutoff, somewhere around 10 years of age, where uh, you shift from type 2 to, excuse me, type 1 to type 2. Now, um, type 1, uh, we talk about the increasing prevalence of type 2. Type 1 actually has been increasing in prevalence as well, and this comes from uh, the uh, search uh, study, uh, and these are data from Colorado, uh, that show that uh, whether you're looking at the Hispanic population or the non-Hispanic whites, uh, the prevalence of type 1 diabetes uh, going back uh, uh, several decades has actually been increasing. 
So uh, the reasons for this um, are not entirely clear. Uh, there are a lot of hypotheses. Uh, some people uh, argue that this could be the accelerator hypothesis, meaning that as uh, the prevalence of obesity increases, there's more stress on the beta cell, which uh, then subsequently leads to an increase in the incidence of type 1 diabetes. But again, these are all hypotheses, and it may very well be the case that the reason we're seeing this increase in type 1 is because of our, our changing lifestyle. So um, I take this slide uh, from uh, George Eisenbach, and it's been modified by Jay Styler, uh, and then by me over the years and by many other people. But this is really the timeline of type 1 diabetes and primarily beta cell mass in type 1 diabetes. Many of you are uh, familiar with this. You know that there's, there's probably at least two hits that uh, an individual needs to take in order to develop this. First is that uh, there is a genetic risk. Right? So we know that certainly HLA haplotypes uh, probably give you the greatest risk for developing type 1. And then we believe that there's probably a second hit, some kind of an environmental trigger perhaps, uh, that then begins this decline. So the first thing that we typically see uh, in this very early stage, particularly in mice, in humans, harder to detect, is this uh, insulitis. So this is a, a picture of uh, islets from uh, an NOD mouse, uh, and this is a, a four-week-old mouse. And what you can see, even in a four-week-old mouse, you can start to detect a little bit of insulitis. So that's all these... Uh, uh, this is hematoxin counter-stained uh, cells, and you can see these nuclei sort of just uh, in, not really even invading the islet, but sort of this hairy insulitis. And that's the earliest signs that you see of type 1 diabetes in an NAD mouse that still has yet to develop any uh, uh, either glucose intolerance at this stage or uh, frank hyperglycemia. And then after that, you begin to see uh, a variety of different things. For example, multiple antibodies start to appear in the serum. And then, uh, then there's a decline in beta cell mass. And the, and the time in which this occurs, I think it's largely dependent on the age. So obviously, the younger you are, the faster this, this time can occur. And the older you are, the more protracted. It can take many, many years, uh, the older you get. So, um, and eventually, we, we see clinically type one diabetes when there's a loss of somewhere around 80 to 90 percent of the beta cell mass. So uh, as Lori mentioned, my interest has been primarily in the beta cell. So type 1 diabetes has been thought primarily to be an immunologic disease, and I, and I would agree with that by and large. But, uh, but clearly, you get the manifestations of diabetes when you lose either beta cell function or mass. Okay? So, um, what we have studied over the years is, is primarily gene transcription. And we know, uh, and I don't think I need to tell anybody here, uh, the unique features of uh, the beta cell with respect to its gene expression profiling and the variety of different uh, genes and proteins that are expressed in the beta cell that allow the beta cell to sense glucose, uh, to couple that to insulin release. And so um, in addition to all of this, uh, as we kind of study, and I'm going to show you some data today, we'll primarily be looking at this sort of coupling process in the beta cell in the setting of type 1 diabetes. And hopefully I can convince you that there is, in fact, defects in this coupling process uh, quite a bit uh, prior to the development of frank type 1 diabetes. Okay, so uh, if I'm going to talk about type 1, I've got to talk about the immunology. I'm not an immunologist. So I won't go over the details of this, but I think it's important to understand it. Uh, and so um, 
it's believed that uh, there is antigen exposure that occurs at some point during the pathogenesis of the disease, either because there's a low-level death of beta cells which result in antigen exposure or because there is antigen exposure on the beta cell surface. Nevertheless, these antigens are picked up by dendritic cells, uh, which then shift from a resting state to a mature state. And then um, it's thought that these dendritic cells, or antigen-presenting cells, migrate to the local pancreatic lymph node, where they then trigger uh, T-cell proliferation. And then there's at least a couple of signals that we know. One is an antigen-dependent signal called signal 1, which is in which these antigens are presented in the context of NHC class 2, and then can trigger T cells. And then you need a, a second component called co-stimulation, which is an antigen-independent signal, sort of a, a check-type signal. Uh, that when those two occur, then you can start to get uh, T cell proliferation. And then many talk about signal 3, which is really the release of cytokines and growth factors for T cells, in particular IL-2, in the IL-2 receptor and the related IL-15 receptor. And then as these cells grow and proliferate, this is a, a key feature of type 1 diabetes, they then migrate to uh, the uh, islet where they uh, give you that picture that I showed earlier of, uh, of that uh, insulitis. And then in this process, there have been many drugs uh, over the years that have been uh, used in, in humans and in mice to interfere with uh, a variety of different steps in this process. Some have been successful, um, and of course success is a relative term, and then some have been uh, very disappointing. Uh, the bottom line being that almost any of these therapies that you look at that have been labeled as successful have uh, only uh, an effect uh, that seems to delay the onset of disease and the eventual decline in beta cell mass. And to date, not a single one of these agents has actually, uh, in any durable fashion, uh, prevented the loss of beta cells. So that the rate of decline seems to be the same, regardless of which of these drugs you use. So that has always suggested to us in the, in the field that maybe we need to be either thinking combination therapies, or we need to be thinking of other ways to attack the immune system. And so these are, uh, these are perhaps some of the directions that people in the field are going, and certainly one of the directions we went in when we were thinking about why all of this failure. And so we went back to where we started, which was uh, the islet. Okay, so um, why is beta cell function, or what is the evidence that beta cell function is actually effective in type 1 diabetes, even prior to the onset of disease? So um, I'm going to point back to this study. This was a diabetes prevention trial. This was done a number of years ago. And it's followed patients uh, before the onset of type 1 diabetes, and it looked very closely at beta cell function and the ability of the beta cell to release insulin in response to glucose, and then followed these individuals and looked at those who became to develop type 1 diabetes versus those who didn't. All of these individuals in this study were first-degree relatives of individuals with type 1 diabetes, brothers, sisters, for example. Okay? So what you see is that if you then look retrospectively back and look at those who develop diabetes versus those who don't, the progressors versus non-progressors, you find something that's quite interesting. So just look at the solid line, uh, either the open circles or the black circles, and what you see is that the individuals who uh, did not progress to diabetes uh, had an ability to secrete more insulin uh, with uh, the amount of glucose that was planted. 
Okay, so as their plasma glucose increased, you could see their ability to release more insulin was greater than that of the, those individuals who eventually did progress. Keeping in mind that none of these people at the start of the study had diabetes or clinical signs or symptoms of diabetes. Then when you looked at the end of the seven-year study, what you found is that those who didn't progress effectively didn't change their glucose sensitivity in the beta cell, whereas those obviously who progressed uh, had much worse beta cell function, because uh, uh, at that point they had clinical evidence <coughs> of diabetes. So this suggested that a, a very sensitive measure for predicting who might develop diabetes or progress to type 1 diabetes are those individuals who had what we call poorer glucose sensitivity of the beta cell. Okay? And if you then look at these uh, survival curves, diabetes-free survival, you can see that those, if you stratify them into high glucose sensitivity, median, or low glucose sensitivity, whether you look at females or males, what you find is that those with low glucose sensitivity had a much higher rate of progression compared to those who had high glucose sensitivity. So it suggested that very early in the disease, there was something about the beta cells that, that would have been able to predict who might develop diabetes. Perhaps it's neither, we don't know if this is the, the reason why they developed diabetes or not, we just know that it was a very early sign. Okay? Um, beta cell function, so this is the other thing, and we, we talk about having residual beta cell function in type 1 diabetes, and why is that important? So uh, if you look back at the, the largest study of type 1 diabetes that we've done to date, which is the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, way back in the early 90s, uh, what it taught us was that those individuals who had measurable C-peptide, so evidence of beta cell function of some sort, even though if they had frank diabetes, were individuals who had a lower risk of diabetic kidney disease, lower risk of severe hypoglycemia, and a lower risk uh, in the rate of progression to uh, uh, eye disease. So having measurable C-peptide gave you uh, a lower risk of complications of diabetes independently of glycemic control. So this was important because it suggests that preserving beta cell function to some extent um, has sort of an independent benefit, even if you have type 1 diabetes. Okay. And this was seen in transplant studies as well. So individuals who've been transplanted but then later developed diabetes, those who still had C-peptide had a lower risk of hypoglycemia, for example. Okay. All right. So um, now I'm going to kind of shift a little bit from the clinical studies to the mouse models and, and maybe provide some evidence, hopefully, that it's true in this mouse model that we're studying. Not a perfect mouse model, but it's probably as good a mouse model as we have. And that's the Nod mouse. Uh, this was developed in Japan back in the 1980s, and it was developed by a complex uh, breeding scheme from this uh, sort of ICR, CD1 background. Uh, these animals develop insulitis maybe as early as four weeks of age, and then they progress primarily from a macrophage infiltration to primarily a T-cell infiltration by 10 weeks of age. So there's a difference in the, the makeup as these animals age of that insulitis. Um, Eventually, they develop diabetes uh, at about 12 to 14 weeks of age, not 100%. Uh, and, and interestingly, the incidence is greater in females than in males for reasons we are not really uh, sure of. Um, but one thing we do know is that it's heavily dependent on the housing environment. So getting diabetes in these animals means you have to have a really clean uh, mouse facility. And, and in fact, uh, <laughs> our mouse facility at, at IU 
um, our incidence in males almost approaches the incidence in females. In our, um, but we've been using primarily female mice for all our studies, primarily because that's what, how the literature uh, has, has done it over the years. So this is, uh, uh, this is the female MOD mouse, and by 24 weeks of age, uh, you can see about 80% of our animals develop type 1 diabetes. Uh, interestingly, if you go out, there's a period of time, about six or eight weeks, where that incidence doesn't change. And then uh, at later ages, uh, 36, 40 weeks, uh, there seems to be another uh, increase in diabetes incidence in these mice. I don't know why that happens, and I, I, get, I tend to believe that what's happening very, very late in these animals is maybe a slightly different process. Nevertheless, even those animals that don't have diabetes still have insulitis. And that's important to keep in mind. That means that these are beta cells that somehow appear to be somewhat resistant to whatever that process is. Okay. Now, um, in the type 1, uh, the NOD mouse, there's probably 20-odd loci that confer susceptibility to type 1 diabetes and to insulitis. And interestingly, uh, the presence of insulitis doesn't always correlate to the presence of diabetes. And, and different loci can give you a uh, risk of either insulitis or diabetes or both. Okay. So that's something to keep in mind. And then um, uh, this particular case, the IBD4 locus, is a locus we've been interested in over the years because of some of the collaborations we've had and others, uh, is an interesting locus because it confers risk for both insulitis and type 1 diabetes. So if you start making uh, mutations in a variety of these genes, you find that you reduce the risk of both insulitis and diabetes in these mice. And, uh, and one of the genes that I've studied in collaboration with Jerry Nadler, whom I'm told spoke maybe a year or so ago, was the 12 lipoxygenase gene, this ALOX15, um, which sits right in the middle of this cluster. And, and his work in the past has shown that when he uh, knocks out this gene, and then back processes mice onto the NOD background, he can almost completely prevent the development of both insulitis and diabetes in those mice. Now, what was interesting about that study, and maybe potential limitations of that study, was when they did the back crossing, they back crossed not just to this, this locus here, but it was actually a slightly wider locus that included a, a host of other genes as well. So one thing they couldn't exclude in their studies was that their back crossing uh, the reduction in insulitis and diabetes was due, in fact, to the ALOX15 knockout. It could have been due to polymorphisms or mutations in any of these other genes that, uh, that encompass that particular region. And so that was a criticism of that study, and it still stands today. But um, interestingly, one of the genes that sits right next to the lipoxygenase cluster is this gene here, EIF5A. And this gene is a little bit different than every one of these other genes in this cluster because if you look at all of the other genes in this cluster, you can see that they're all very pro-inflammatory genes. They encode cytokines, chemokines, and a whole host of others that shouldn't surprise you as being involved in inflammation. The question is, why does this particular gene sit right smack in the middle of this cluster? And at the time we looked at this, we had no clue what this gene actually did. What it encoded, it presumably encoded some type of an initiation factor. So that's, uh, that's what started our interest. And so when I started reviewing the literature on this factor, what I found is, at least my synthesis of the literature was, and, and most of the literature had been done in yeast and in um, cell lines, and then uh, very little in animals, although there were some data in animals, 
And before we had actually entered this field, nobody had ever attempted to knock out the gene or do any conditional knockouts, uh, except in yeast. And uh, what it appears is that um, this gene seems to regulate translation. So uh, the, the terminology EIF5A is eukaryotic translation initiation factor 5A. So it's thought to be a translational initiation factor. And as a result, it's thought to regulate mRNA translation. And so um, what happens during mRNA translation is that, um, particularly when you have stresses, such as inflammation, genotoxicity, or viral stresses, they can impinge on the uh, translational machinery and the endoplasmic reticulum and, uh, and can cause endoplasmic reticulum stress. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. And, and the immediate impact of ER stress is to limit mRNA translation. That's the first thing that you see. It's not a, it's not a transcriptional response. It's a translational response. Because you want to limit the load, workload on the endoplasmic reticulum. And that immediate limitation of the workload is what we call an adaptive response. So it's a good thing. It tries to limit the stress, hopefully so that these different uh, stressors um, are uh, eventually uh, uh, subside. Now, when that stress can't be relieved, eventually uh, the translational machinery uh, initiates what's called an execution response. So while most of the proteins might be, might be stopped from being translated, a subset of proteins will be translated that then eventually uh, signal the cell to undergo apoptosis. And, um, and so our hypothesis was that EIF5A may be a critical factor under this sort of emergency translational program to allow for translation to occur uh, initially for the adaptive response and eventually for the execution response. Okay? And that was what I could gather from the literature, and that was how we started our, uh, our hypothesis testing. Um, and there was a, a, an interesting feature of EIF5A, and, uh, and it, uh, it was post-translationally modified by uh, spermidine, which is a polyamine, to form this uh, unique amino acid called hypocene. What's interesting about this is that this factor, 5A, doesn't function as a translational factor unless this hypocene modification occurs. So in the absence of hypocene, there is no function. This factor can't bind mRNAs, and it doesn't seem to participate to binding to translational machinery. Okay? That's been shown extensively in these studies. And it turns out that a lot of those studies are true in mammalian cells as well, when you're looking primarily at tumorigenic lines, such as HeLa cells and HEK293 cells. And, um, and this is a process uh, that is regulated by an enzyme called deoxyhypocene synthase. It's the first enzyme that, that converts this aminobutyl moiety here and conjugates it to the epsilon lysine group. And then there's a second enzyme that doesn't reg is not really regulated. This is the rate-limiting enzyme. And then this is sort of the completing enzyme that hydroxylates this group. And this is a reversible reaction. This is an irreversible reaction. So if you can get to this stage, that's basically the end. It's sort of a, an end point. And so we believe that um, uh, this process, so you can, you can basically inhibit either of these enzymes. And in fact, uh, as you can imagine, you can inhibit this enzyme much more efficiently because it's the rate-limiting enzyme. So there are drugs, amine uh, spermidine-like analogs, one is GC7 is a drug that we use, that can very rapidly inhibit this enzyme. And I'm going to show you some data. So uh, this is what uh, it looks like in, in human eyelids and mouse eyelids. If you take spermidine 
labeled spermidine, and you incubate these islets for either one hour or 16 hours with spermidine. Okay? Now I'm showing you the entire gel here, and you can see that there are no other proteins that take up spermidine, except the 17 kilodalton protein known as EIF5A. It's true in islets, it's true in almost any cell type you look at. And again, you know, doing mass spec analysis, no other protein other than EIF5A has been found to be hypusinated in this way. Okay? There is an isoform called EIF5A2. It's expressed in a limited variety of cell types and, and is not expressed that we can tell in islets at all. It's only 5A1. And, and you can see here that when we treat with uh, GC7 and then pulse at the same time, we can completely block incorporation of the hypocene residue into EIF5A. Uh, more recently, we've worked with um, uh, a group at Lilly, and we generated an antibody, and it's the first of its kind, that actually recognizes only the hypocene form of 5A. And this is just, uh, just showing you here that if you take EIF5A by itself, purified in vitro from bacteria, add spermidine to it, the antibody doesn't detect it, even though total 5A is present. Then you add spermidine and deoxyhypocene synthase, and you can see the formation of the deoxyhypocenated 5A. And then you add the second enzyme in the pathway, deoxyhypocene hydroxylase, and it carries it all the way. And you can see that it's a spermidine-requiring process. If you just add the enzymes without spermidine, uh, nothing happens. So, uh, so this has been a, a nice reagent that we now uh, are beginning to use for a variety of the studies that we're doing, and I'll show you some, uh, some data on that, too. Okay, so I mentioned that EIF5A regulates translation, and I've been primarily a transcriptional person, so I've had to really study the translational literature. And one of the things that a lot of these uh, hardcore translation people do in studying translation of mRNAs is this process called polyribosome profiling. And this is an interesting um, uh, technique. It basically involves isolating total RNA and protein and running it through a sucrose gradient sediment, sedimentation. And then what you get uh, is the following. So if you're just looking at the RNAs through the sucrose gradient, so this is the sedimentation direction here, what you see is you can see RNAs associated with the 40S ribosomal unit, the 60, and the 80S. So the 80S is a monoribosome. Okay? Then you can start to see these other species, uh, diribosomes, triribosomes, tetra, uh, penta, and on the way up. So you can see that uh, these are basically species out here called polyribosomes, where mRNA species have multiple ribosomes. <coughs> and those are presumably species that are being actively translated. Okay? So uh, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a resting beta cell, and here we're using INS1 beta cells, it's easy to do this in ins one beta cells, but we've now been able to do this in primary islets. There's a balance. There's a balance. There's initiation, which is regulated. There's elongation, which is regulated. And then there's the runoff, which is when these polyribosomes finish translating the mRNA. They just fall off, and then they can go back and recycle. So it's a balanced process. And in a cell that's actively replicating, like a, a tumorigenic cell line, this is what it looks like. Okay. Now, if you deplete the cell of EIF5A, what happens? Nothing, okay? So in a, in a beta cell line, uh, getting rid of EIF5A doesn't seem to do a heck of a lot to the cell, okay? So that's, that's interesting. So that means that it doesn't seem to be actively important as an initiation or elongation factor, okay? So now uh, we can look at what happens to a stressed beta cell. 
So fapsigargan is a way to stress a beta cell. It induces ER stress, and that causes an initiation blockade. So now ribosomes have a hard time initiating, but they have no problem elongating and running off. And when you then look at a cell treated with fapsigargan, this is what you see. You see mostly monosomes, disomes, trisomes, and then you can see that all of those polyribosomes, they start to run off. And that's what the picture looks like when you have ER stress and an initiation blockade. You get runoff, okay? Now, what happens when you deplete EIF5A in the setting of this? Well, EIF5A turns out not to be an initiation factor, but an elongation factor. And what we observed was this, and I'm gonna just show you a picture of it, and then I'm gonna show you the profile in a minute, is that Faxigargan blocks the elongation initiation, but then getting rid of 5A prevents the elongation of these ribosomes. So they just kind of sit there, just statically sit there. So they're polyribosomes that aren't doing anything. So they don't run off. And what does that picture look like? Looks like this. So you can see that you get this initiation block, the ADS peak rises, the disomes, trisomes rise, but now there's a persistence of these polysomes. So this suggests that EIF5A is in fact an elongation factor. And this was our data, and then now it's been subsequently published in yeast, that it functions as an elongation factor in yeast. And then most recently, we published a study that shows that it's also true in uh, INS1, uh, uh, excuse me, primary islets and INS1 data sets. Okay. So, uh, so let me just summarize some of the work, because I'm not going to present a lot of this stuff. This is published, uh, of what we showed how sort of EIF5A may be regulating stress in a beta cell. So uh, when you have stress signals, such as inflammation or ER stress, um, you do initiate a gene transcription cascade. This gene transcription cascade produces mRNA, such as uh, inducible nitric oxide synthase. It's a classic uh, transcript whose levels rise dramatically in response to uh, inflammation. And what we showed in a, in a paper we published a couple of years ago was that EIF5A physically binds to these mRNAs in a hypocene-dependent manner and then is transported across the nucleus in conjunction with this protein called CRIM1, which is a nuclear export protein. And then, more recently, we showed that EIF5A actually then takes this mRNA and participates in its elongation at the, at the ribosome. Okay? So, so 5A seems to have uh, more than just an elongation function. It has an mRNA binding, translocation, and elongation function. And we believe that this function becomes important primarily in the setting of stresses. So I showed you earlier that if you get rid of EIF5A in a resting beta cell, nothing happens to translation. But when you get rid of it in a beta cell that is under stress, such as Fapsigargan stress, all of a sudden things change. Okay? So, um, so let's talk about beta cell and cytokines for a moment because this is what's happening in type 1 diabetes. So beta cells are exquisitely sensitive to pro-inflammatory cytokines, but what you see initially is not death. Matter of fact, death is a pretty hard thing to see in response to cytokines. We see that much, much later. So what we did was we take, uh, uh, in this case, I'm going to show you INS1 beta cells, and we've been doing these studies in islets, and they've been kind of tricky, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll show you the data first in beta <laughs> cell lines. And this is uh, what we do is we have see, we do a, a seahorse analysis. So this, uh, this is a device that will measure metabolic flux, oxygen consumption rate, and extracellular acidification. So oxygen consumption rate is a reflection of mitochondrial uh, uh, oxidative phosphorylation. 
and extracellular acidification is primarily a measure of glycolysis. Okay, so this is what happens. So when you take a beta cell and you hit it with glucose, there is an increase in oxygen consumption. Uh, then rotenone basically kills uh, electron transport, and you can see that uh, in the presence of rotenone, you can completely eliminate the signal. Now, when you take a, a beta cell and then you treat it with cyto cytokines, and so we're using a mixture of cytokines here, you can see that uh, the glucose responsiveness is completely gone. In fact, uh, uh, there is no increase in oxygen consumption, and that's consistent with the, the finding that these beta cells don't release insulin in a regulated manner anymore, okay? Now, here's what's interesting. So if we then take these cells treated with cytokines, and then we treat with either an inhibitor to IMOX, or we treat with an inhibitor to deoxyhypocene synthase, we can completely recover that lost glucose responsiveness. So it suggests that um, deoxyhypocene synthase in the setting of cytokines is important somehow in the translation of proteins that otherwise diminish the cytokine responsiveness, okay? And one of those proteins happens to be inducible nitric oxide synthase. I'm not gonna go over the details of that study, but that, that's something that we showed. Actually, I'm gonna show you that real quick here. And these are from primary islets, untreated and treated. You can see the nitric oxide synthase mRNA rises dramatically, 40, 50 fold. But you could see that in the presence of, and these are islets treated with, uh, that were knocked down for the EIF5A, the amount of INOS protein is uh, substantially reduced. And then in um, uh, beta cell lines, you see the same thing. As we increase the inhibitor to EIF5A, the DHS inhibitor, you can see there's a dose-dependent decline in the production of INOS protein, despite the fact that the mRNA is still being produced. So um, we then showed uh, more recently now that, that this is a process that, that, that involves mRNA translation. And what's the evidence for that? I won't go through all of these uh, polyribosome profiles, but to say this, and that is when you treat with cytokines, the mRNA for inducible nitric oxide synthase gets activated and is sitting primarily in the polyribosome pool, being actively translated. When you treat with Faxigargan, which blocks translational initiation, all of that mRNA now is sitting in monoribosomes. It's not made anymore. But in the presence of GC7, the inhibitor of DHS, the mRNA still sits in the polyribosome pool. Okay, and that means that effectively, this is probably, uh, it's sitting in the polyribosome pool, uh, but there's no protein being made. Uh, our interpretation was that, that inhibiting DHS is blocking the translational elongation of uh, NOS2 mRNA. So that's one of the important messages, we believe, that EIF5A is necessary uh, for translating in the setting of inflammatory stress. Okay, so um, the next step that happens <coughs> after exposure of beta cells is, as I mentioned, you don't get death initially, you get dysfunction. And then, with prolonged exposure to cytokines, you begin to see another process, endoplasmic reticulum stress. And in vitro, you have to treat islets probably 48 to 72 hours before you see this. So it takes a while, okay? Um, and what happens in ER stress? So we believe that as cytokines, uh, that is the immune attack, hits these beta cells, 
they, they generate um, uh, effectively uh, uh, oxidative stress within the beta cell, uh, loss of endoplasmic reticulum calcium homeostasis, which then results in the accumulation of unfolded proteins. And as these unfolded proteins accumulate, then you get the unfolded protein response. We talked to, talked to several people about this earlier uh, during my visit. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. But this is, again, an adaptive response that attempts to refold these proteins. So it activates these three arms in an attempt to produce more protein-folding chaperones. When these protein-folding chaperones can't uh, overcome the stress, then eventually you initiate uh, a death pathway, um, and you can get proteins such as chalk produced in this death pathway. Okay, so how does this relate to type 1 diabetes, and why might this be important in the pathogenesis? Okay, so this is, uh, this is my sort of hypothesis slide, uh, backed by some data, um, and, uh, and then still hypothetical in other ways, is that we believe that the very early autoimmune attack that you see by cytokines um, causes uh, INOS activation, the production of nitric oxide, eventual beta cell dysfunction, eventual ER stress. And then at some point, there's either beta cell death or these unfolded proteins that are produced in the ER are released as neoandrogens. That is, antigens now that, uh, because of their unfolded nature, become immunogenic. And that, these, uh, that this process here uh, triggers further the uh, activation of the immune system, which then accelerates this process further meaning that effectively you can get more and more cells dying as you get more and more of the immune system activated, okay? So somewhere along this pathway, you could make an argument that if you can stop beta cell ER stress or uh, this death or neoantigen exposure, you should be able to suppress at least in part the immune system, okay? So that was, that was sort of what we're working on. So I wanted to show you pictures of the folks in my lab. It's a lot easier to show you their pictures because I, I said I can't get a, a, a picture anymore of everybody because otherwise it always changes. So, uh, so these are all the different people that have been involved in this project. In particular, Bernard Meyer is a senior postdoc in my lab. No, she's not postdoc, but a senior scientist in my lab. Uh, Stephanie's uh, a postdoc in my lab who's done a lot of the work I'm about to show you. Uh, and then uh, Masayuki uh, is a new postdoc in my lab who has some uh, really fascinating data on the role of uh, 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 free fatty acids on the translational cascade, which I will not show you today. All right. Um, so we went back to this mouse model of type 1 diabetes, and in our vivarium, I showed you 80% of these mice develop uh, type 1 diabetes by 24 weeks of age, but they start developing diabetes somewhere between 10 and 12 weeks of age. So what we did in some published studies already was we looked at uh, is the ER stress cascade activated in these animals? And number two, can that be blocked? And number three, if blocking that cascade, do you reduce the incidence of type 1 diabetes? So that's what we're going to be looking at now. So when you go from six to 10 weeks, insulitis increases in these animals. And then if you look at insulin levels in these animals, again, by 10 weeks, nobody's diabetic yet. But you can see insulin levels begin to fall in these animals over time. And then interestingly, as insulin levels fall, pro-insulin levels rise. And that would suggest that what's happening is that there may be something happening in the endoplasmic reticulum that prevents pro-insulin processing or possibly folding. 
And then if you take the pro-insulin to insulin ratio, what you see is that as you near the development of type 1 diabetes, but even much earlier, but as you near the development of type 1 diabetes, that pro-insulin to insulin ratio begins to climb quite dramatically. Okay? Now, what we then did was we said, well, that's interesting. Is that happening in humans as well? So what we did was we did something similar in humans. Uh, so these were all children between the ages of uh, 8 and 14. And what we did was we uh, obtained some blood from early onset type 1 uh, diabetic children. These are within three months of diagnosis. And we measured the pro-insulin to C-peptide ratio. Obviously, C-peptide because they are taking exogenous insulin and it wouldn't be appropriate to normalize the insulin. And what we found was that in the early onset individuals within three months of diagnosis, their pro-insulin C-peptide ratio appears uh, elevated compared to uh, healthy controls. So again, it's very early stuff, but um, it's suggested that there's something going on in humans that seems to parallel what's going on in, in mice. And then um, we looked at, at islets from these uh, NOD mice. And we looked for parameters of ER stress. Again, this is all published stuff. But suffice it to say that parameters of ER stress uh, based on RT-PCR measurements, such as BIP, spliced XBP1, uh, CHOP, uh, all appear to increase over time in these animals, okay? even when they're in the pre-diabetic stage. <coughs> what we found, somewhat to our surprise, didn't increase were other ER stress factors such as ATF4 and WFS1. Uh, this is the Wolfram syndrome uh, gene. Um, and, and these are uh, important proteins that are uh, thought to be either necessary for calcium homeostasis, perhaps, or protein folding. And it suggested to us that, well, maybe part of the problem uh, of why these beta cells don't seem to compensate uh, in their adaptive phase is that they're unable to produce uh, enough of uh, these types of proteins that mitigate ER stress. Can I just uh, clarification? Are these mRNA or proteins? This is mRNA. So ATF4, as you know better than anybody, is regulated by, by translation. So correct. what happens to ATF4 protein? Protein levels? In the islets, we had a very hard time seeing them in these islets. So you're absolutely correct. And I, and I don't know what's happening to her. Normally, when we take islets in vitro and treat with ER stressors, we usually see rises in either ATF4 protein. And I'm going to show you some data that a normal beta cell actually does produce more ATF protein in a moment. Um, but we just didn't. So again, this is we don't we can't explain this. This could be because it, the mRNA doesn't reflect the protein. Okay. But it also could be because there might be a problem in producing ATF4. I don't have the answer to that. Um, but if you look at the uh, EM pictures of beta cells from uh, NOD skid mice versus NOD mice, so we just compared the mice with the immune system versus without, you can see nice stacks of endoplasmic reticulum in the skid mice uh, adjacent to the uh, nuclear membrane, whereas in the NOD mice, uh, they are a little more swollen and then really disrupted. You don't see the nice stacking. So it suggests that there's something going on in the endoplasmic reticulum with these uh, NOD mice. Okay, so, um, so what's happening with cytokines and uh, ER stress? So we think that what's happening is these uh, uh, islets are becoming infiltrated with immune cells. These immune cells are releasing cytokines. And then um, over time, we believe that at least initially, they may be initiating an ER stress cascade causing beta cell dysfunction. So what we did was we did polyribosomal profiling, and what we observed when we take 
these now are mean six beta cells and we treat them with cytokines over time. And what you can see is that over time, it takes a while, uh, 24, 48, 72, you can start to see this running off of the polyribosomes over time. And that's again suggestive of maybe an initiation blockade greater than an elongation blockade causing this runoff, as I told you earlier. And then if you look at uh, total protein synthesis over the same time frame, and this is S35 labeling of total proteins, you can see that there is a reduction in total protein synthesis over time as well. Okay? So this, 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 this runoff is indeed associated with less protein synthesis. Okay. So what we then began to do was look at specific mRNAs and what are happening to specific mRNAs during these polyribosome um, uh, runs. And this is what we observed. You take a control cell and you look at, um, and we are looking at the, the CHOP mRNA, and in fact, you see the exact same profile with the ATF4 mRNA as well. And the CHOP mRNA, for the most part, uh, it's a pretty big protein, but uh, most of its mRNA is sitting, this is, a, this is right here, the monoribosome. So it's sitting in mono or diribosomes, roughly. So it's not being actively translated, even though the mRNA is present. Then, over time, as we start treating with cytokines, you can see that there begins to be a slight shift of that mRNA into the polyribosome pool, and then that tends to increase more, and you see more sitting with more polyribosomes over time. So what's happening over time is that mRNA such as CHOP and ATF4, while everybody else is shifting into monoribosomes and being translationally blocked, CHOP and ATF4 are moving into polyribosomes and that's what we call alternative translation that happens during um, ER stress. And now you're getting a subset of proteins that are necessary for either remediation or eventual cell death. Question is, for this pool of mRNAs, does EIF5A play a role? And that was really the question we began asking. So this, uh, I should point out, uh, are the same islets from the NOD mice. And you can see, we can see production of CHOP protein about 10 weeks of age. And you can even see some CHOP staining. That staining doesn't look as good as the uh, immunoblock. We tried looking for ATF4, but just it was really hard to see. It might just be an antibody. It's hard to know. Okay, so um, so we went back to the Stapsi-Gargan model to ask this question of the role of EIF5A in this sort of emergency translational response and the role of the child. And so what we then did, again, we went back to the ins one cells and treated them with uh, Stapsi-Gargan or the inhibitor to hypusination, and we looked at a variety of different ER stress uh, markers by mRNA and protein. So this is what happens curiously, and this is true in IOX uh, that we published recently, and it's also true in, the, uh, in this study we published back in 2010, is that when you treat with stress agents such as cytokines or thapsidargan, there's a huge increase in the rate of hypusination in the beta cell, which is interesting. And then with GC7, if we add just the right dose, which is about 1 to 10 micromolar, we can block that increase and keep it at sort of basal levels. Okay? So if we use that strategy and we look at the mRNAs in cells that are treated with Faxidargan, for example, we could see dramatic increases in the mRNAs encoding all of these different ER stress responsive genes. And you could see that in the presence of GC7, there's not much of a difference in any of these mRNAs. Okay. So it's not doing anything to transcription. Here's, what, here's what's interesting. Look at what it's doing to translation. So um, we can see that um, EIF2-alpha, which is uh, phosphorylated 2-alpha, is what really causes that block in initiation, uh, gets immediately activated in the presence of Thapsidargan. 
And then when you add GC7, nothing happens to that. Here's ATF4. ATF4 protein might go up a little bit, hard to say, but maybe it goes up a little bit. You can see CHOP protein over time uh, increasing. But look at what happens in the presence of GC7. No CHOP protein gets uh, produced, even though the mRNAs are produced at very high levels. As a result, you can also see that there's no cleaved caspase being produced in the presence of the inhibitor. And then if you actually look at, um, and the same is true when you knock down 5 or even if you don't use the inhibitor, but just do an siRNA knockdown, you see the same, same trends. And then, uh, and then if we do flow cytometry to look at live versus dead cells, you can see that in the presence of fat to garden, 90-odd percent of the cells are either dying, so apoptotic, or uh, frankly dead. Whereas in the presence of GC7, which was added one hour prior to fat garden, it looks no different than the inhibitor cells. So what we had then assumed is that, well, EIF5A may be important somehow in the initiation of uh, this stress response. And I'm going to, because time is running out, I'm going to go through a couple of these slides really quickly and just show you that EIF5A, in the presence of fat garden, tends to co-localize with uh, calreticulin, which is a marker of the endoplasmic reticulum. And if we make a mutation in EIF5A that can't be hypusinated, we can block that overlap. Or if we add baxigargan, we can block that overlap. So we think that EIF5A is rushing to the, the ER and is participating in translation. Okay, so uh, let me just quickly go through in the last uh, five or six minutes uh, our, our data on hypusination inhibition in NOD mice. And, and again, ask the question, if we can block this sort of ER stress response, do we get an improvement in glycemic control? So, so these are animals now that are treated with the drug GC7 by intraperitoneal injection for four weeks. And if we isolate islets from these animals, we can see that we can reduce EIF5A hypusination with this intraperitoneal injection. Um, if we just look in that four-week period that we treat these animals, we can see that glucose tolerance already improves in these animals that are treated with the drug. And uh, their insulin secretion increases uh, significantly compared to uh, control saline-treated animals. So it's a little increased, but it's, it's, it's definitive. And then markers of stress beta cell, we see uh, trends for reductions in BFXBP1 and CHOP, very clear reductions in SPLICEXBP1, which is a, uh, a marker just downstream of the IRE1 pathway. So there's clearly improvements in beta cell function. Um, if you look at um, the actual presence of insulitis, this is really what struck us, is that there was a lot less insulitis in the animals treated with GC7 compared to the animals treated with saline. When we quantitate that, you can see that there was almost a dose-dependent effect in both the extent and severity of insulitis in these animals. So that uh, it did cause a bit of a conundrum for us because we thought, well, is that because we have reduced beta cell death and therefore decreased uh, uh, insulitis? Or is it because we have actually uh, had an effect on T cells themselves? So that, that got us a little worried because it made us think, geez, maybe we got to be looking at these T cells. So um, uh, that's what we did. So what we, what we did was we, we went back to these mice and we looked at the pancreatic lymph node and looked at these uh, TH1 cells, which are the helper cells that are thought to be important in the pathogenesis of the disease. And sure enough, in the pancreatic node, these were reduced, um, whereas in the spleen, there were no changes. 
And then what we then did was we thought to ourselves, okay, well maybe this could be having an independent effect on T cells, independently of the beta cell. So this is really where we got um, a little scared as we had to start moving into in a little bit of immunology, and we don't do a lot of this. So what we did was we isolated CDP-positive splenocytes from the, the spleen of uh, NOD mice, and we treated them in vitro with a stimulating agent and a co-stimulating agent, and then we did flow cytometry. The first thing we did was we looked at uh, CFSE incorporation, and this is a measure of proliferation. And what you can see is as beta cells, as these T cells, excuse me, proliferate, the dye gets diluted um, over time, and this is a four-day experiment. And you can see as we increase the concentration of GC7 in this um, cell culture experiment, you can see that proliferation rates decrease dramatically. So these T cells stop proliferating in the presence of GC7. And, and the reason for this, we think, is because of this. When we did flow cytometry and looked at TD25, which is the IL-2 receptor alpha chain, what we find is that as we increase the concentration of GC7, the IL-2 receptor alpha chain uh, surface levels uh, dramatically decrease in these animals, or in these uh, T cells. And, and then in vitro, you can see what's happening to Th1 cells. They dramatically fall with GC7. And then what's happening with the regulatory T cells is interesting. They actually increase. So the good guys go up, the bad guys go down. That's an interesting phenomenon. I have a, an explanation for it, but I don't think I have the time to go through it. So, so that caused us to rethink our model a little bit. And so now we believe that, well, maybe there is an inherent susceptibility to beta cell. Blocking ER stress could be a good thing there. Uh, but now it looks like EIF5A may be important to T cells as well. And in experiments I won't show you, what we found was that if you take a T cell resting, there's no EIF5A in a T cell. You stimulate it with CD3, CD28, 5A levels increase dramatically. So EIF5A, we think, may be important in the translation of the CD25, the IL-2 receptor alpha chain. And that's what Stephanie right now in my lab is looking at. Okay, um, let me just, I've got only two or three slides left. Um, and I'm going to just show you this. Where does EIF5A and spermidine come from? It comes from this pathway, the polyamine pathway. So these are polyamines here. And so polyamines are known to be important in proliferation of cells, such as T cell. And, uh, and in part, probably because polyamines uh, feed EIF5A, and EIF5A may be important in the production of proteins that important in G1S transition. Okay. So we've done studies blocking DHS. Theoretically, we should be able to block this enzyme here, which is the regulatory enzyme in polyamine biosynthesis, and we should be able to also reduce 5A, and we should be able to get a similar phenotype. Well, we can block that with a drug that's already clinically approved. It's called DFMO, it's difluoromethylornithine. And if you take a mouse and you feed DFMO in uh, the drinking water, which is how you do it, so very simple, this is an NMD mouse, and you treat it with 0.25% DMFO or 5.5% over time, you can see there's a decrease in hypersinated 5A. And then, so I'm going to just skip over the STZ experiments and just show you what happens if we treat with DFMO for just a period between 6 and 10 weeks of age where DR stress occurs, and then stop. There is a 50% reduction in the incidence of uh, type 1 diabetes in these animals. So uh, now we have to start thinking a little bit differently, and that is not just in the beta cell, but also in the T cells, and this could have a dual effect.
but clearly, uh, just a, a, a targeted therapy uh, seems to be sufficient to reduce incidence. So I'm going to stop there because I know time is running tight. Uh, I just want to recognize all the people in my lab at School of Medicine uh, at IU, uh, Ron Weck, who uh, actually discovered PERC. Uh, and then uh, my other collaborators, Roland, uh, Rohit, uh, Jerry Nadler, uh, and then also I should point out Lily has helped us out as well. Thank you all.